All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with writer, director, and producer Robert Tennell about monster movies, fanzines, fiction, Frankenstein and me, Merlin, Creepshow, Burt Reynolds, Troma's lost classic, Young Goodman Brown, Ghosts, Psychics, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? All of the above. As far as a troublemaker goes, it was more like, because uh, I was a good kid, but, you know, I, I was attracted to a certain level of adventure that stressed my parents out. And I didn't understand. I was good in school. I was able to sort of, I could just figure it out and not have to do homework and stuff and still pretty much get A's. And I, I was I was real resistant about, just didn't understand why they made you color inside the lines. And I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I was, you know, I wasn't Brando in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was sort of complicated you know i mean i was a, a horror movie nerd and a comic book nerd but i you know but i played football and played basketball and liked to go fishing and camping i mean i had a really norman rockwell should have drawn my childhood he would have nailed it <laughs> great friends great community there was not a lot of suffering going on for better or for worse you know there are just things strike me like like a lightning bolt and those things affect me and not just fiction incidentally but you know there are certain things that you just you know, that I'm just very honest that, oh, man, this really affected me. And I know that it sort of shaped the way I would storytell, including I think the, some of the first movies my parents took me to see, which I don't know what the hell they were thinking. But, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird makes sense, even though I was like three from the cold. I mean, I'm haunted by that movie. I'm a big, I was a little kid and I was like, man, it, I don't want to grow up if you got to live like this. But, you know, there were different, certainly, I would say, Mary Stewart books about King Arthur, you know, the Crystal Cave, Hollow Hills, if you're familiar with them. Yeah. They radically affected my sensibility. And around the time I discovered them, I discovered George Romero's Martin. And I began to understand what a kind of deconstructionist approach for one of a better, I don't know if that's exactly how I should describe it, but that's how I choose to describe it. That certainly affected me because I love the idea of, you know, film or whatever that can function on one level purely as entertainment, but then underneath of it, maybe it's something else that's actually even studying itself, even as it's unfolding. You know, I like stuff like that. Dune was a big one for me. It really affected, I think, I think because, you know, it has such a strong, actually environmental slant. Salem's Lot, I remember really being knocked out by Salem's Lot, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of, and Peter Straub's work, not so much ghost story as uh, Coco and Mystery and Throat. I mean, those really affect, you know, you just, you encounter different things that just sort of, I mean, I, that list is probably so long. <laughs> but then also there was some, some nonfiction stuff that was really hitting me. And one, David Peary's book, A Heritage of Horror, a very smart examination of British horror movies from like 1948 to 1974. And I encountered the book, I think I was maybe 14. I mean, I had to have a dictionary with me all the time. I, 
but it, it made me think that films could be about something more. It made me understand the, the literary basis for what Dracula, Frankenstein, whatever, but also all the many influences, of, much of which were coming out of the, you know, the Romantic era and British lit and the Gothic era. It just, I, it just, it made me realize that this stuff could be fun, could be entertaining, but could also be smart. So all those things, I think, really affected me. Could you say the name of that book again? Uh, yeah, it's called A Heritage of Horror. It's probably sitting here somewhere if I look closely. I'm jotting but, it down because that sounds up my alley. <laughs> uh, David Pierre, P-I-R-I-E. I, I was able to connect with him on social media a few years ago, and, and it was great because I was able to tell him, hey, you know, you really, really inspired a kid from West Virginia. I would have never read a poem, but then when you start hearing about this guy, Byron, 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 and then you look into it and you're like, yeah, this is kind of cool. Not that I'm some big poetry scholar, but I like what I like. When did you begin to experiment yourself creatively? Do you remember your first short stories or when you pick up the Super 8 camera? Yeah, I mean, I became fascinated with my grandfather's regular 8mm stuff when I was probably four or five, and that affected me. The soap opera Dark Shadows was popping when i was in about first grade i remember my brother i couldn't get home the school bus you know i would miss the first 15 minutes and there's an episode where you know angelique the witch causes josette to jump off the cliff and she comes back and she's like got this messed up eye and i missed it and my little brother was too scared to watch it and he couldn't tell me what happened it's very bitter <laughs> but that sort of then led to wanting to know more about so that's how i learned about vampires and things not from classic horror really and then at some point, probably by about third grade, I'd gotten an eight millimeter projector of my own and I, I would get the Castle Films catalog and I'd see these faces, Lugosi and Karloff and all this imagery. And I just think like most kids, I was so attracted to the, the fairy tale imagery of the Universal Classic era. And about that time, a lot of Hammer stuff started showing up on TV. And so it just it was just a kind of a perfect storm. But it probably wasn't till about 73 that I discovered Famous Monsters and the Monster Times and started getting fanzines and really started understanding the complexity of how much stuff was out there. And it was a pretty wonderful time. That was a great era to be. It really, really was. I mean, it was, you know, whether it was Dan Curtis making the Dracula, you know, Jack Palance, which was so cool or or again just this stuff that was being dumped on tv and being a little kid late at night and here's don't look now brilliant just being like oh my god i i don't know it was just a great it was a great great time plus we had the drive-ins man i was going the stuff i saw at the drive-ins you people would be so jealous and i was seeing it first run it was pretty cool including a lot of euro horror you know a lot of cool stuff was there a lot of, of hammer stuff at the, coming in at the drive-ins? By the time I was old enough to get to go to the drive-in alone, the hammer stuff was gone. I remember not getting to go when, like, Captain Kronos was playing and Mom and Dad just, they didn't, you know. I, I, I just caught the tail end of stuff. I think I saw, I did see Satanic Rites of Dracula in the theater, not in a drive-in, but it was, like, four years later. And I think from Beyond the Grave, maybe a couple things like that, um, it was when everything was sort of riffing on theater of blood and vibes, you know, it was during mm. that era. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I should now they're going to they're going to revoke my my monster kid card. <laughs> <laughs> so what what about your parents? Were they involved in the business at all? Oh. Although my dad's, I was, I was my late father. I was surprised to see that that in his uh, high school yearbook he said he'd like to be in the movies. But no, they were not very encouraging. They're awesome parents. I mean, they would go to pen. They would buy me the books and things I wanted on and the movie stuff, and then be like, "Oh, but don't can't this just be a hobby?" You know. <laughs> but then when my dad, once my dad saw a creep show and saw my name at the end of the movie, after that he never looked back. He's like, "Yeah, right on. Let's go do this." Yeah, that's so, awesome. Took my mom decades longer to finally accept. What monster scared you the most as a kid? Oh, man. I mean, I was, I, I thought Christopher Lee as Dracula was really terrifying. I mean, really, you know, because he was just so active. I didn't really have anything to compare him against, except maybe Barnabas Collins. Uh, although I was just always drawn to Lugosi, you know, but I wasn't so much afraid of him. The Universals, I just like that fairy tale world. I love right. this, I think, as much as anything. Yeah, I think, you know, initially, Lee as Dracula was probably the first thing that really, really, really scared me. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people say some iteration of Dracula, not always Lee, but people usually say Dracula or something, and I can relate to that because while though it's not a serious horror movie, when I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, I saw Monster Squad and Duncan Rager, even though it's you know a kid movie, he has a very serious 
sort of scary Dracula for a kid movie, you know? And that's that's one that sticks out to me from being young. Yeah, no, he. I think it's just the... Of course, you know, the scariest monster when I was a kid, you know, was Charlie Manson. That was terrifying, that whole thing going down. And then I remember also, you know, the, the Patty Hearst thing. It was around the same... Around that time that I learned about the bomb. And, you know, I was just sort of like, man, like, you guys are messing everything up for us kids with this... <laughs> Sticking, just sticking uh, with the younger years, music-wise, what what kind of records were you spinning around the house? Oh, man. I mean, I'm going to look kind of probably silly. I mean, but the, the great thing then was, you know, it didn't have FM, really. You know, listen to AM. You know, our AM radio station may play The Supremes, followed by Bob Dylan, followed by The Rolling Stones. <laughs> no, it was a free-for-all, and it was wonderful. It was, it, we weren't so programmed or slotted. So I was open to stuff, but I had my mom's younger sister, my aunt, she gave me all her record collection. And I really, you know, I was really into the Beatles. And I actually, and I really, actually, I liked the Beach Boys. I liked it. My parents had movie soundtracks. You know, we sort of became aware of your own thing beyond Top 40 or whatever. I gravitated to like Springsteen and Elvis Costello and the police. And But I was open to other stuff, you know, whether it was ELO and stuff. Now I'm probably embarrassed to say that I liked when you're 19, your hormones are thumping. But I liked, I, I just, it was, that was a really interesting time too, that early MTV era, the, whether it was, the, you know, the Go-Go's and the Clash. And it was all just cool. Can you, this is just a something that just came to mind can you ever remember being inspired by something other than a film or a story for one of your stories maybe did you ever pull from a song or something like that that's a great question i mean i remember certain tracks by led zeppelin i would always feel like man i could build a story even uh, i always equated the, the the only moody blues stuff i liked is that you know days of future past the nights in white satin and all that tuesday afternoon and those things always reminded me that they were i felt like they were cinematic and movie-like and Usually, I do think, though, what I was reading and watching was probably a bigger, bigger influence at the time. Now, the last film I directed, yeah, I was so grateful to be able to play some 80s music just because I'm more than ever, I'm seeing just how critical it is to evoke time and place through period music. Mm -hmm. I think primarily, and we haven't really mentioned comic books, but comic books were, uh, there was a certain, there were some things happening in comics in the 70s that, and they're the obvious stuff like Tomb of Dracula or, you know, with Marvel and, or uh, Dracula Lives, the Black and White magazine or something. But there was other stuff too, like, you know, a lot of Batman comics and associated things like Manhunter that were really, really affecting me. It certainly became, I was certainly aware and trying to see stuff when you know, with creepy and eerie and that. So, I mean, I was, it was one of those weird times too, because it was a nostalgia boom. And so you were often aware of things and can sort of quote, you really didn't, you know, most of what I understood about the EC stuff, the amicus movie adaptations or stuff that you might read or, you know, see in an ad in the back of Famous Monsters or, or any of the other Warren magazines. And back then when you, you know, you'd cut a, cut a lawn for 45 minutes to make $2, you weren't going to make much of a dent in that catalog for Captain Company stuff in the, in the back of Famous One. <laughs> so did you ever have any interest in drama or theater as a kid? Were you? Only in that I went and did some things. There was a, there was a really good theater department where I grew up at Fairmont State. They had a great theater department, actually. And when I was in high school, I went for a couple of years and did some things because I just wanted an outlet. You know, I wanted to go and I thought maybe I could learn a little bit about directing actors. And, and I did. There were a couple of women professors there who were just just excellent. And I really learned a lot and made a lot of good friends. And it, you know, it sort of conflicted with basketball practice. And all these <laughs> things. But I really I don't regret it. I think it was uh, I'm really glad the time I spent in it. I wish I wish I could write a play or something. I've always thought it would be so fun, but I kind of messed with it once. I don't I just don't think it's for me. Although my wife and I recently went to Pittsburgh to see a Dracula ballet. That design of it was just brilliant. I mean, the imagery, I was knocked down and I was so inspired, you know, when it was uh, when it was over. It was really something. I believe there was a Dracula adaptation as far back as like 1974. I'm late to the party. When you Now that you're older and you reflect back, what do you think it was about those monster movies that spoke to you as a kid? You know, I spend a lot of time thinking. I've been working forever on a documentary called That Shit Will Rot Your Brain about how the monster kids change popular culture. I've, I'm desperately trying to get it done this year. It's been years, years and years and years. And it's been very, we've only ever screened it once. And there's just so much I wish I could do with it. But it'd be, it's like an eye, it just took over. It, it just, it's so much. 
And so, I, you know, I think about that a lot. And I do think, you know, at its simplest level, the Frankenstein monster is very relatable to a kid. You know, he's clumsy, misunderstood, but unlike the rest of us, he could beat up his dad, which would, you know, could be handy at times. <laughs> Dracula, you know, you get to stay up all night, he can kick anybody's ass, and women love it. I was like, you know, what's not to like? And I, I, I remember staying up late at uh, my aunt's house and watching Dracula's Risen from the Grave, and I'm like, man, he's the boss. You know, he's, I thought he was really cool. I was like nine. But I think from the universal perspective, they were interesting faces. I mean, Lugosi and Karloff, and others too. I mean, clearly, I mean, I'm gravitating to the big two, but was just, their faces were just incredible. And then the imagery that, that James Whale conjured up, and you know, and obviously with, with Jack Pierce, and the art direction and the cinematography, I mean, all of it, I just wanted to enter that world. You know, I kind of wanted to live in it. I just thought it was, everything just was cool. These big castles and these big cool windows and things. I was, I was attracted to the, to the visual, I think, initially. Hammer, you know, turns that. I mean, it was one, they were pretty to look at and they had a different vibe. And also there was a more, it seemed more plausible, but uh, like, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was, you know, for a, you know, a, a, a young kid, a boy, the girls were easy on the, it was not, I'm just not going to pretend it was something else. It was all very, it felt very, I mean, it was clearly coded, read me on the lines and it affected me. Plus I, and I just liked British stuff. I loved the Avengers. You know, when it was on American TV, I loved the Avengers. I liked the Persuaders. I liked the Champions. I liked the uh, Jerry Anderson stuff, like Captain Scarlet. And that's, I mean, I just enjoyed, I liked their sensibility and I was a huge Monty Python fanatic. So I think that was probably, probably affected it a little bit. How did the transition into the business happen for you? Was it a, was it a gradual thing? I will say, you know, you, you shouldn't be falsely modest. The truth is I kind of, I did strategize initially. I figured out, I, I watched people making fanzines and I saw and I knew immediately that they were building networks and they were gaining access. In particular, there's a friend of mine, a guy named Sam Irvin, who's a movie director, great person. But initially, you know, he had a fanzine and he's a few years older than me and he had a fanzine called Bizarre and he was getting to travel, you know, to, he went to England and met Terrence Fisher and Christopher Lee and, and he parlayed that fanzine into, you know, not just school, but going to work for Brian De Palma and, you know, has built this really successful long-term career. I, of course, that was all in front of him then, but when I knew that this was happening and I was seeing other people, I was real inspired by the guys out of Baltimore that were making movies and doing fanzines, you know, Don Dohler and that crew. And you want to talk about the quality of them, fine, but the truth is they were making stuff and it was showing up on TV, okay? And that's just insane. But the biggest thing was, you know, my proximity to George Romero, his DP, Mike Gorman, and Tom Savini. There was going to be a convention. I saw it in, in, in a, an ad in Film Collector's World. Went to Pittsburgh in 1978 and spent a long weekend, made lifelong friends who are still my friends, but got to spend, you know, I saw Martin for the first time. And I would say I went into that screening a kid and came out an adult. It changed everything, mm. changed how I thought about everything. And I finally saw a movie that told the story the way that I wish I could tell it which was to actually try to, at that time, I wanted to see, you know, could you take these mythical things and ground them? That, I mean, I mentioned earlier the Mary, Mary Stewart thing. It takes Arthur and Merlin, and it's so grounded to really have any magic. Maybe there's magic, but it suddenly becomes plausible, and for me, it became more enjoyable. I met George and Mike and Tom, and I just, and particularly Mike, mentored me tremendously and you know i did then i did interviews i also met carrie o'quinn from starlog and fangoria and he became a friend and i interviewed him did my little fanzine made a lot of contacts through it but i was able to parlay that you know into getting to spend some days on night riders and then the following year you know getting to do like i think i worked six months on creep show at that point george I remember George said to me, if you're serious, and I think you are, you got to go to L.A. Like maybe at like 19 or 20, I'd sort of peaked. I was like, <laughs> I'd gotten to work on a, not only our movie, but with, with my hero, because George really, George is one of the big five, you know, influences on my aesthetic or my, my sensibilities. You know, he and certainly he, Fisher, and I mean, well, there are others, but those two, at least from the horror thing, are, are at the top. I was like, man, what do I do now? And, you know, ended up in 83 and music videos were uh, it was the wild west and they needed bodies elevated through the system so quickly and probably picked up some bad habits because there were so they were throwing so many people at it that didn't necessarily have any experience in it but i got to do so much stuff you know i was i was music videos were embracing technology that the that the established industry wasn't even 
touching yet, whether it was getting to work with a Luma crane or a steady cam or shooting underwater or, they, or traveling. You know, I mean, we got to do so many cool things. And at the same time, when I wasn't doing that, I, I would often help Fred Olin Ray with some of his early films. And he was a good friend who I had met through my fanzine. What was the and name of your fanzine? It was called Demons of the Mind. Ah, that's pretty cool. It was cool. How many issues do you think you ended up doing? 20-some years, 25 years later, I did a second issue just for my friends that I see it like either Wonderfest or Monster Bash or something. A bunch of guys, we hang out in the thing we call the old dark clubhouse and it was just a thing I did for them, but it was fun. I'd, I'd love to, I, I wish I, I wish I had the time and the discipline to do a fanzine right now. I would do it. It stimulated such great conversation and, and expression and just creativity. I mean, they were really, you know, I mean, I have a friend, Dick, Dick Clemenson. He, he's been doing a fanzine since like 1971. He's been doing a little shop of horrors, just pretty much about hammer and, and English horror. And it's amazing what he's accomplished. You know, my, my friend Gary Svela with Gore Creatures, which became Midnight Marquee. I mean, it, from the early 60s, this thing ran decades and decades and decades and did really great scholarship. You know, it's it's good. It's good stuff. It's it's an antidote to the kind of the mass-marketed press release stuff that passes for journalism. Indeed. Uh, you just mentioned a creep show. So before we gloss over it too much, what are some of your memories on set of creep show? What were some of your tasks? Being uh, almost the youngest person on an enormous crew, my tasks were often uh, pretty demanding. You know, it was like I had never run a jackhammer before and I had to run a jackhammer. I just found this picture. I'm not holding the jackhammer then, but I jackhammered out the concrete with a couple guys. And then I had to hand dig the hole that Fluffy lived in when Daryl Ferrucci was operating Fluffy under the steps in the thing in the crate. You yeah. Know? So that was, you know. <laughs> and then. I would get every kind of shitty job where he passed George and I were doing something and people were asking questions and somebody asked a question about dealing with the cockroaches and George said, I don't know, ask him because I used to have to go feed him and it was a pretty creepy, gross thing. Like we had, we had them outside in a, in a heated trailer, like a construction trailer and they lived in garbage cans and I would have to take rotted bananas out there and it had to be like 93 degrees in the thing. And when you would go in that trailer, it would just smell close the door because it was cold outside and you close the door and go in and then all you would hear is like all these freaking bugs you know were in the but that was a you know if there were so many cool things i mean i have a great picture i was so fortunate and it makes it look like i'm doing something other than going to get their coffee which is i'm sure what it is but it's me and george and steve king in the uh graveyard set from father's day it's like that you know where clinton has his picture with jfk it's like i've got this picture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, the 15 year old me would it would have would have probably you know just stroked out if he'd seen it <laughs> it would have been just too much i can't believe they used real roaches that there was a trailer full of roaches on set <laughs> they came from ave in trinidad tobago they lived in back guano in a cave uh, that's why they look so good <laughs> yeah huge you know what i mean they're like those big palmetto or whatever you call them in los angeles they were big like that I sent you the email yesterday. You know, I've been searching high and low for Goodman Brown for a long time. Just were you on that set at all? I know you're the producer. Oh, oh yeah, Peter and I had gone to film school together. He was a little bit ahead of me, and we did Surf Nazis. You know, I produced Surf Nazis Must Die, and which was a crazy fun thing to do, and it certainly did well. Young Goodman Brown was just was extremely ambitious, not just for the money. And Peter had a vision for it that didn't really track with the buyers. Um, he was very committed to uh, uh, much of the dialogue comes from the transcripts of the Salem witch trials and then a lot of it comes from Hawthorne and he he wanted it to be what he wanted it to be and as a result often you know it's kind of uh, I, I actually think the film works pretty well after about the first 15 minutes the first 15 minutes are a little wonky but it be, it takes on a real fever dream kind of a quality and to you know to actually be shooting in Danvers and Peabody and all these places, uh, you know, where the the story really took place during the, that whole that whole era around 1690s. You know, it was an, it was an extraordinary opportunity, and uh, you know, and got to work with you know Judy G, who I loved, you know, from a Hammer Vet, and I'd always really enjoyed her work, and we became friendly, and it was really great to get to work with her. And it visually, was a very interesting film. It was just so ambitious at that time. There just wasn't an appetite for it. I know that there's a cut down version somewhere. I think out there that they use for like an educational type thing because it is. I mean, it's a it's quite a straightforward adaptation. 
because you know the story's short and then it's sort of there's a bigger there's a bigger storyline going on tapping into it like the 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 transcripts from the trials so it's a fascinating thing and i will say that my, my biggest regret from all of it is just that john mccallum wrote an absolutely fabulous score that people weren't hearing and i and i feel bad about that because he's a yeah man a that oh, sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but that the intro uh, score to that movie is great it just you think you're about to watch the scariest movie ever made when that thing comes on <laughs> i know and we did have a killer title sequence i will say that we had a killer killer title sequence <laughs> yeah john ryan as the devil of course great johnny was i love john but no it was you know to really to get to you know be to shoot at night on john proctor's farm or in Rebecca Nurse's house. You know that that's just that's the greatest gift of all of this. As hard as it can be and it has been hard. I have been I have been left for dead more times than I care to rem- remember and you know and to still get to do it is remarkable. But when I look back at opportunities like that, no matter what else happened to get to spend a few months in New England under those circumstances, uh, I, I mean again, you know, my 15-year-old head explodes. Let's talk Frankenstein and me. Great movie, very impactful on me as a kid. You know, I can remember watching it with my grandpa. Very emotional and fun. You know, just take us through coming up with the story and getting the project off the ground. You know, it's funny, and I just talked to Richard Goudreau. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, barring any surprises, I think you will in the next year probably see a restore a restoration. Now, oh, great! That's great news. We can finalize this. See, I can't say anything else, but I'm excited and hopeful because it never got the proper transfer back in the day, which was very, very distressing. And, you know, other than my movie Feast of the Seven Fishes, it's the film that I get the most fan mail and the most feedback from. And for it not to be accessible other than a low res YouTube thing is just it's 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 frustrating. Although, I mean, I don't look back. Like I said, I don't if we proceed and do a restoration and everything i mean it will simply be the movie as it was through the eyes of that bob not not through who i am now that's not for me for others want to do that i think that's great it's not for me i just it is what it is in that context i remember i had been hanging out in yucatan like back in the day when like there was no electricity or anything i mean you had it was pretty primitive down there for like a week and a half or something and then i was flying back and i I remember I was taking off from Cancun and I just for a minute I saw this image of a of a little kid seeing this monster yeah, out in the desert. I, I have no idea why that did that. And by the time I changed planes in Guadalajara, I kind of knew what the story was. And then after I finished the movie Kids at the Round Table, or while I was finishing the movie, and it had sold incredibly well. Uh, Richard Goudreau said, you know, what do you have to have this story? And we, we got it to script with David Sherman. And, and so... I'm trying to think how things went down. What, there was wind in the sails because Kids Around Table had done so well. You know, it was just selling. And when it sold Disney Channel, everybody's like, oh, my God. And then, it, you know, it was in competition at the Kinderfest Berlin Film Festival. It was just winning awards. It was doing all this stuff. And so I had this chance to do the film. And originally, I had wanted to do it uh, more as an uh, indie adult film. You know, it was more adult <laughs> for grownups. I mean, not an adult film. But originally, it was more of a... A little darker, a little more grown up and more of a Paris, Texas or a, I don't want to say blood simple because there were no murders or anything. But that sensibility, it was way more like late 80s, early 90s. You have to door that opened for me, you know, said, yes, you can do this film, but it has to be a children's film. That's what you do now. And so, you know, we reconception. Kids were always in the beginning. And then I realized, you know, as I was doing it, that maybe it was a great thing for kids because... I didn't quite understand. My, my buddy Tim Lucas was telling me some things about the movie that I don't think I even understood. But I realized how much I resented teachers who were mad if you were doodling in your notebook or reading a comic when your work was done. And I would be like, I got straight A's in this class. <laughs> that I'm, and I really resented that. And so I think that was informing a lot of it. And, and also just that, that kid thing of, you know, kind of wanting to enter the narrative. And then Richard backed me on it, you know, and we built these incredible sets up in Montreal, but we shot, you know, half the movie in Southern California, half the movie in Quebec. I am always so lucky with cast. I can't even explain. I mean, Louise Fletcher was, I knew very well because her son's one of my best friends. And so that was a doable thing. But to get Burt Reynolds, you know, I just never dreamt. And of course, you know, Ryan Gosling was not Ryan Gosling yet, other than in name. But I, what a wonderful kid. So pleased and proud for him. That's all worked out. All the kids were great. Ricky B's doing well. 
Jamie went on. Uh, he left. He's, he's in the industry, but not as an actor anymore. But he followed his dreams. It was an, a very difficult shoot. I think I had I had 35 days, which, my God, I would kill for a 35 day <laughs> shoot now. Just playing with a lot of imagery that was so important to me. It's hard to even articulate how surreal and how grateful I was, even as I was doing it, even as hard as it was. You know, Bert, he's sort of from the same era. Did he enjoy or take note of all the homages you guys were paying to the old school movies? He did. I will say what Bert was attracted to in the movie was the notion of failed dreams or the sacrifice it requires to reach your dreams. Because Bert, and I'm not telling stories. I mean, Bert did to an extent have a chip on his shoulder. I remember he was telling me a story about when he was you know, for many years, he was dating Dinah Shore. And he said on the weekends that she had a place, I think it was in Palm Springs, they would go out there. And he's like, you know, you're going to dinner or lunch with Groucho Marx. He goes, you have to hold your own. You know, and they're looking at him like, oh, here's the the former jock, stunt man, pretty boy, doesn't have a thought in his head, which was not true. And so, you know, I think there was a sort of a chip, you know, there was something to prove. And intellectually, there was something to prove. And so I think he, I think he was attracted to the kind of underdog thing in the film. Um, I can tell you that he worked very hard and brought his A game. It was not always because he was dealing with some stuff. He was going through the divorce. and But it was a gift that he gave me, you know, to come and to do that. For me to be around, you know, the star of the, the longest yard was like... <laughs> <laughs> and before that, you had uh, Michael Ironside and uh, Malcolm McDowell in uh, Kids of the I, I, Round Table. And I'll tell you, we started shooting that movie. We didn't have all the money. And Richard... Goudreau, who uh, just was fearless. I, like, he put up his house. He's like, no, nope, it's going to be okay. He's just that guy. You know, he's just that guy who just bets the house. And we got Michael early on, which was great. And he was Canadian, which was helpful. But we needed another name. And I had actually wanted, we had wanted uh, Malcolm for Young Goodman Brown, and we couldn't get him. Found out later he would have done it. He, he never knew that he was that it was offered to him. He was kind of angry about it. I had to, And I had spoken with Donald Sutherland because I love Donald Sutherland, and he just didn't have the time. And I was doing everything, man. I was dropping. I had him on the phone. I go, you don't understand how much I love your work. I love Castle of the Living Dead, and I'm a Michael Reeves fan. And he just went, oh, my God, you really do know my work. But he was not available. But I, Malcolm had actually been the first person. You know, I kind of had a vague hope, like, what if I could get Peter Cushing? And what I didn't realize is he actually passed away when I was in pre-production. And someone told me as I was talking about him, and they go, didn't you read it? And I had missed, you know, no internet then. I, did, I didn't know. I sent a letter, FedExed a letter to Malcolm's representation saying what what I wanted, you know, that I wanted. And he was shooting Tank Girl in Italy. And we're shooting the movie, and I have no Merlin yet. I mean, it's getting scary. And I'm on the set, and I see my producer take a call, and his face is just white. And he comes up, and he's like, it's for you. And I was like, I got it. He goes, it's for you. <laughs> and I said, hello. And he goes, Robert, this is Malcolm McDowell, Italy. I, uh, I love your letter to me meant the world. I'll see you next <laughs> <laughs> And he was just a delight, just an absolute delight. Then I got on very well with Michael, and I'm I'm sorry I've not gotten to work with either of them again, and I hope hope that changes at some point. Still um, a chance. There's always a chance. There's always a chance. There's a project I'm up to direct, and I was looking at it, and I was going, boy, I wonder if I could get Michael to come out here for a few days, just because I want to see him, just because I want to you know work with him. But yeah, every movie, it's just I've been very, very, very blessed with the caliber of actors I've been able to achieve. So was, uh, was Frankenstein and Me your first time as writer and director? No, Kids Around the Table, I wrote the story as well. Gotcha. Now, just from the outside looking in, that would seem like the preferable way to do things. You know, you don't really have anyone to answer to in terms of the director or writer. Is there a lot more stress that comes with being the writer and the director that you'd say? Honestly, I think if I wasn't a writer, I probably wouldn't answer to direct. You know, I never pursued or was able to get into TV or anything like that where you can work and you know, you're always, you know, you can earn, kind of earn that way. I had to direct other stuff. The thing that's kept me in the conversation or getting to do things is absolutely the writing. But I mean, that can be frustrating. It can be very frustrating at times, especially, you know, when there's an agenda for whatever reason. You know, sometimes your foreign, back then, your foreign sales company would get something into their head. Like, I absolutely detest the title Frankenstein to me. I've always hated it. I hate it for no other reason that Dr. Frankenstein is not in the movie. <laughs> Yeah. And my original title was Mojave Frankenstein, which I love the the juxtaposition of the desert landscape with this kind of, I felt it really made the fantasy sequence pop. Yeah. 
yeah. black and pop, you know, that I really thought it, I thought it was a good fit. So yeah, you know, there were, there were things that were happening that were kind of forced on the movie that, that frustrated me. And I think that it, the acts don't break the way I'd really like them to, but mainly, you know, anyway, I don't want to get into it. I'm grateful to everybody that ordered me to get the thing done, you know, with the uh, sequences like the night of the living dead, uh, the house sequence and the bride of Frankenstein, were those just your personal favorites that you just wanted to stick in there? Or was there a reason you chose those? Well, I wanted night of the living dead, obviously because of my uh, affection for, for George and for the work. And, you know, it's such a touchstone people don't realize now, but to know that someone was basically almost in my backyard, 80 miles away, making movies, that were being seen, that were getting good reviews. That were, I mean, that was incredible. And George uh, was kind enough to get me to make it so that I could copy from the, they had done that transfer so I could digitally, you know, put the stuff on the drive-in screen. So I wanted something, you know, I wanted that. And Dan, Dan Curtis was very kind to let me have the Dark Shadows footage. And that, again, those things were so central to that time to, you know, I would have, I mean, the only thing I struck out on was Monster Mash and the, the money they wanted for that song, it just wasn't going to happen. So, you know, each thing, I mean, Brides of Dracula, in, in many ways, it was kind of my favorite move around, you know, that's a moving target. And so I really, I love windmills. I want, you know, between Frankenstein and then Brides of Dracula, you know, with the windmill, that windmill imagery really imprinted itself on me. So I, you know, I wanted to do that, but Neither Living Dead was, I, I just didn't know how to do it without having that. And anytime that I could, as I, I use this overused phrase, I suppose, but enter the narrative anytime I could step in and do those things. I can't, I just can't really believe it ha happened, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> it, and it, it was did. different. And it's very different. You know, it was not, I mean, that's the thing. I'd, I've never done a double bill. I'd love to do a double bill with Monster Squad because Fred's take was very different. They're two very different films. <laughs> they mine the same thing, but they're, I think it'd be a neat companion pieces, you know. Uh, that's how I describe Frankenstein to me is the monster squad of the 90s. They kind of, you know, they have different approaches, but it's that same feeling of passion. Yeah. yeah and I think and I do think we often in the film nail a, a, an early 70s sensibility. I really love the sequence when they're when they're trick or treating, even though it's short, you know, it just feels oh, they had all those poor kids in costume. and It was like 110 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all the projects you've worked on in your career. Which would you say is the most challenging? Those are one you lost sleep over, pulled your hair out over. Frankenstein to me was very challenging. You know, my my first marriage was uh, was ending during it, and that was tough. And there was just a lot of compromising that had to go on, and it, and it was uh, there were some financial challenges with it, and that was that was tough. The last feature that I directed, Feast of the Seven Fishes, in many ways was the was the hardest. I mean, it took it took so long to get to make that movie. And every single step of the way, all I heard was no, couldn't do it. I mean, I thought it was really funny when I wanted to do, I had just written a horror movie that had been picked up. And although it hasn't been made yet, it's funny, I've made more money off the screenplay than anything I've ever done. I don't know if it'll ever shoot, but I went from that and I wanted to write this piece of Seven Fishes, you know, a Christmas rom-com from the 80s. And people are like, you can't do that. You can't do that. You do horror. You, you do children's films. And that, and then it was really funny. As last year, I was talking to somebody about a horror picture, and they go, well, "Dude, you can't do that. You do rom coms." <laughs> Maybe I'm just a jerk. I mean, I know why. Dude. It's just kind of. I'm not. I know one thing. I'm not going to fix that mindset. The only thing you can bring to it is tenacity. You know, like Stallone did with Rocky, and you just you have to draw a line in the sand and say, if you want to do this, you do it with me, or you don't, or you don't do it. Unfortunately for me, many many times people said, "Okay, then we won't do it." So okay, I'm not going to give it up. So, and I have other things I would give up tomorrow. If somebody came along and said, "Here, check." I'll be like, "Oh." What's the best advice you've received in your career, and who gave it to you? Wow, so many people. When I was doing Creep Show, Richard Rubenstein, of all people, uh, he wouldn't even remember this, but he would give me little bits of advice here and there, like you know, don't keep people waiting. He would say, you know, don't try to show off with a Gucci notebook. You know, you, that the idea is what matters. He would just tell me these little. He was actually. You know, was, was was pretty patient with me, like so many people in that movie, and, and so kind. And that is certainly got a lot of great advice from him, and and obviously from George, Mike Gornick, Mike Gornick, who was the DP on you know Dawn of the Dead and Martin and Creepshow and Night Riders, and Mike just, I mean, I can't even track all the advice that he gave me. And you know, I had a whole other life, you know, writing comics, and a lot of good advice I would get, particularly from Mark Wheatley, the writer artist. But, you know, Alex Saviak and, and Neil Vokes and Bo Hampton and David Michael, 
Adrian Sam and all the artists I got to work with. I learned a lot from them. So I don't know, you know, is it advice or is it just how I know when I worked with Alex on the on the Feast of the Seven Fishes comic, I learned so much about panel to panel storytelling from him. You know, it was I mean, I guess that's not necessarily the advice of, you know, how do you get in the door? That's all I ever ask for is I just want to be able to get in the door. I would rather hear no than maybe. You can't hear any of it if you're on the outside. So all I you know, can hope for is to get in the room. When I look back on the body of work, I'm kind of astonished, you know, that I got to do all that. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think I have a really bad case of imposter syndrome and it's really difficult. You know, I was raised that you don't talk about yourself, you don't brag, or you, you shouldn't be. And um, quite honestly, like when I finish something, I'm, my mind's already on something else and it, I should probably do a better job, <laughs> you know, promoting what has, what has been done. You know, it sounds bad, but more times than not, when I talk to filmmakers or actors, all of them have imposter syndrome, and it makes me feel better about, you know, myself and doing my own projects. You know? But you know what part of it is, and I tell this, and I hope this comes out the right way. I hope I say this right. But I spent so much of my life looking for Merlin, you know, looking for that mentor, that guide. And, you know, I was like in my 40s before I realized, I said, oh, shit, I'm Merlin. Cavalry's not coming, no magician's coming, there's no net. The only person I can count on is me. And not because other people don't have, it's not about that. I hope you understand where I'm going from that. It's just, but you know, hope is not a strategy. Waiting for someone to come save you, they're just never coming. And often because they can't. You know, we ascribe all this power to people. I, I saw a thing a few years ago and I thought, I, I saw on social media and Fred Decker of all people said, someone said, I don't know why you won't go do this, this and this. And he's like, you think I wouldn't if I could? You think this is easy? This is phenomenally hard to get to do. I I, st I am in shock every day. I produced three movies last year. I, I can't believe I got to do them. You know, I'm direct. I'm finishing up a, a concert film for Charles Wesley Godwin. I'm shocked that I get to do it. But I just want to shoot. I just want to keep going. You know, I want to keep moving and experimenting. Like I like to do now, you know, now, of course, when they don't pay anything, I like doing music videos again after not, after swearing on a music video shoot in Jamaica in the 90s. I'm like, I will never do this again. I'm done. <laughs> and now here I am, you know, and, and, but, you know, for me, there, it's like lab work. I did a thing last year for a performer named Landon Cube. The minute I heard the song, I was like, man, I can do an HP Lovecraft riff on this. Mm. And I kind of ends with a Dagon type story video for this song called Red and Black. And I had, it was awesome. And I did it like it's a, if somebody adapted and did a Lovecraft movie in 1944, but with better visual effects. Oh yeah, that's right up my alley. Oh, you should check this video out. I think you'd probably really like it. I will. Are you a big Lovecraft fan in general? You know, I, God, this is going to sound terrible. I love the ideas behind the story often better than the language. I'm not mm. always a fan of the prose, but I think the concepts are incredible. And yeah, in, in that respect. And I like when something gets it gets it right i like that uh, you ever see that the shuttered room from the 60s oliver reed and i'm aware of it i have not seen it worth seeing it, it gets that love to me it gets that lovecraft because i'm a big fan of um, paul nashie's horror rises from the tomb mm. i love and the vibe of that feels very lovecrafty to me it feels like color out of space kind of thing i don't know but maybe that's just in my head have you seen richard stanley's color out of space i have not and i wanted to because that's with nick cage right yeah good one is it a good one it is great i've had richard stanley on he's that's a very that's probably my favorite lovecraft adaption i need to see it i did like Stuart gordon's uh Dagon yeah yeah that's a good one too haunted palace that's an old one but a good one roger corman you know but my, honestly i don't know what has happened to me the last 10 years or so that where i i don't watch as much and i read more and i'm sort of interested in some other things and i and i find myself you know drifting back and then the last two years i have bought more blu-ray and dvds in the last two years than in the last 20. very important to me to have this physical media i need that blood blood on satan's claude blu-ray <laughs> don't give that if i'm being completely honest although I'm, i love it i love I'm really excited to have it, but I like I like having that physical media. I, I feel myself getting sucked back into uh, fanboy Bob. Hey, embrace it. Buy all the movies. Speaking of physical media, we do need a Goodman Brown, young Goodman Brown, and Frankenstein and me. So we need to work on those. You know, that's the funny thing is it is I, I'm sure that if someone were to do the young Goodman Brown thing, it probably would do pretty well. I told Lloyd that myself, and when I emailed him, we talked about it a little bit. I said, you know, I got at least. A few dozen people that'll buy a copy right now if you can get this out there. <laughs> I'm sure he would like to. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
I'm sure he, I'm sure he would. So uh, this is something I like to ask uh, everybody, Robert, because you never know what they're going to say. Have you ever had an experience you'd consider supernatural or paranormal? I have, although I will say I also understand that you know perception is reality, and but I, I have experienced some things that I can't explain. Particularly once in uh, in Colorado, that was like full on kind of something happened <laughs> right in front of me that I I cannot explain it, and it was very physical. It wasn't like oh I thought I saw a shadow out of the corner of my eye or something like that. I mean it was pretty direct. Yeah, I've experienced a few things that I can't explain. Um, but it's one of those things that I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be that semantics jerk, but it's just like, you know, people say, do you believe in UFOs? Well, of course. I believe there are objects in the air that have that aren't identified. I choose not to spend a whole lot of time thinking about it any more than, I like that, I like this phrase. It's not really about this, but if you, let me sort of extend on it a little Go bit. Ahead. We have circles of concern and circles of influence. And I'm trying to focus on the circles of influence because if I can't influence it, worrying about it's just not doing me. I can be I can be aware, but what can I really do about it? I just lost a friend though who was a who I actually did a fan scene with. He was a great guy. Of all the people I've ever met in my life, if you just said this guy was gonna end up being some sort of psychic medium, I'd have said you were high. He'd never do it. He would make fun of it. And then he ended up was and a lot of weird stuff that I heard and saw him do that. I can't explain. I can ascribe anything to it because you know how can I? I just all you can do is observe and report, right? Right. It's the unknown. Well, Robert, not to uh, keep you all morning here, just to put a bow on everything. What's on the horizon for you? Can you share anything without getting in trouble? I think so. While we were here, it was beeping in. I'm probably going to find out if uh, a movie I'm going to produce is greenlit. That was my brother, who's my business partner, my brother, Jeff. We have a company called Allegheny Image Factory. We do everything from commercials and music videos and branded content and documentaries to TV and movies. Um, we've been um, we've been producing some films for a lifetime. We just did a couple movies, uh, one uh, with Samantha Mathis that Gina Gershon directed, and then another one, a really talented director named Marty Goh uh, directed called uh, Rose for a Grave that turned out really good, really creepy little movie. I anticipate doing two to four of those this year. I am, I can't say what it is, but I am, I had a writing assignment that I was attached to direct and I don't think it's going to go. And then I was brought a legacy project that's something of a sequel to a well-known property that I'm now attached to direct. I'd really like, I'm really hoping it's something I get to do in the fall or, or early uh, 2024. You know, that that last minute, the Feast of Seven Fishes was just so well received and it was honestly if you don't like that movie there's no one to blame but me because i got everything i wanted it is exactly the movie i set out to make the problem with that is now i really don't necessarily want to make stuff that i <laughs> isn't exactly what i want now would i go direct uh, take a directing assignment and go make a little christmas movie for of course i mean you know i gotta feed my family <laughs> right but terms of you know how much suffering do i want to endure you know to make a passion project those are there are only a couple right now that i just really would would take a bullet for all i can say with any certainty is nothing will go the way i thought it would my biggest strength i think is being too stupid to quit (laughs) well there you go robert uh i don't have anything else for you man i just want to say it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for spending some time with me I got to be honest with you, this is like the best therapy. I mean, it really actually, it's actually really healthy. You know, I did a, 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 you know, like last year, some point during COVID, maybe it was two years ago, but Mick Garris and Sam Irvin, who I mentioned earlier, and I did this virtual panel for um, for Anthony Taylor because Monsterama couldn't happen, you know. And he said, you guys want to do this? And we did this thing. And I think by halfway to, we didn't really care if anybody was listening or not. And it became... You know, we were all on the couch, so to speak, sort of just holding forth. And it's really, really healthy because I'm very, very sensitive to, I don't begrudge anyone anything. Okay, you do what you have to do to pay the bills and to take care of your life. But I know who I am, me sitting at a table signing autographs, assuming there was somebody that wanted them. It's probably never going to happen. I really scared of that. I'm really scared of it only being about what I did and not what I'm going to do. I mean, I'm not going to go so far as, you know, Woody Allen. I never look I never look at my movies again when they're done. I'm not that far gone, but I'm pretty far gone in it. For me, it's not healthy to dwell. And so, but to be able to dip in like this and to, when I was talking to you, like I could feel the heat. I know what it smelled like on the set of Frankenstein. I mean, 
in the desert. Like I could smell the, you know, the, that kind of creosote smell from the Ocotillo and the Joshua tree and when it would rain a little bit or whatever. So that's what's healthy about this. And, and I do appreciate that people care. You know, I had a really lovely communication a few years ago from a guy who worked at a Holocaust museum, a young guy, but he had grown up with with kids at a round table and he sent me this passionate thing and it, it, it really made me feel good and it made me feel you know i mean sure it makes you feel validated i think you just have to be careful that you don't start being like the little match girl you know you gotta light that match to stay warm you need that validation you know i mean the work is there and if you like it that's great and if you don't like it, it's there and I'll, I'll be honest with you just i swear to god you can hate a director's movies you can love them or whatever but for me the fact that they exist for me, when a person types a hundred-page screenplay, even if it's shit, I admire the hell out of them for for their sticking to it. Right, it's it's a time investment, and it's hard no matter what, you know. It is. It it really, really <laughs> is. So you know, this is I appreciate it. I, I don't mean to think it's. I'm like the least cool person you know, man. I don't think I'm I disagree. Very kind, <laughs> but hopefully we will be able to make an announcement on this on this restoration. I'm hoping and trying to broker it and get it done. Uh, the, the, a fabulous comp- company wants it and what they want to do with it is, is wonderful I just got to get Richard on the page that's awesome I really hope the uh, Frankenstein in me physical release comes to fruition for you well for all of us really <laughs> hoping that's coming soon and if you need anything else just give me a holler this is really enjoyable and I'm I'm very appreciative very I thank you man uh, like I said big fan and <laughs> there is something I don't do you still talk with uh, do you still talk with Jameson no but I could get to him I not, would really not, like to talk with him if possible like I don't want to push on him or anything but if he would be down for it I'd love to chat with him I'll ask Richard okay I'm probably going to talk to Richard tomorrow so I will ask him life's funny <laughs> It is. Well, I thank you again, Robert. It's, I'm going to catch you losing. It's been uh, great talking to you, man. If you need a follow-up of anything, you holler, okay? All right, let me know if you hear anything on Jameson. I will. Take care, Justin. All right, bye-bye. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Robert. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.